Dial T for Fiasco. Hello, and welcome to the 19th episode of the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie. I'm Tim Leonard. And I'm Sean Frost. And tonight's film is going to be the 2007 independent film written, directed, and edited by indie movie legend John Sayles. It's Honey Dripper. This is a fantastic film. Uh, uh, there are so many reasons uh, to watch it, to love it, to talk about it. Uh, what were you thinking of when you... Uh, put it into the hopper. Well, I know you like musicals, and this isn't quite a musical. It's just a movie with a lot of musical performances in it, but it plays out like a fable. It's the night electric R&B came to super Jim Crow era uh, Alabama. And it shows uh, previously in in one of the episodes we were talking about microaggressions during the spook who sat by the door and this this one just has aggressions it doesn't have the micro attached to it very much oh my god yeah and and there's such a giant swath of so many different black characters struggling and scraping to get by and keep what they've got uh and forces from near and far and from you know, black people and white people all just pressing down at the same time as the pressure builds and builds and builds for uh, Pine Top Purvis trying to keep his slowly failing roadhouse in business because he built it, it's his, and it's you know, there's so few black people in his his area of uh, uh, Alabama that can say they've got anything. They all work for somebody, and he works for himself. And that pride is what keeps him going when everything else starts to fall apart. And then you get a happy ending. Yeah, which, uh, frankly, uh, the first time I saw this, I was not expecting that. That was a very welcome surprise. Yes, and and actually, pretty much every character gets a happy ending. Uh, the sheriff has a peace in the community. Uh, Pine Top keeps his bar. His wife decides to stick with him instead of leave him because the local preacher thinks that what he's doing is sinful and because he hates uh, secular music instead of sacred. Uh, and, and even the guy who comes down to threaten Pine Top gets to sass him a little bit and then leave. Yeah. <laughs> And that's actually one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, but but we will get there. Although I do want to say uh, the the threatening henchman character is named Cool Breeze, and he is played by Tom Wright, who has shown up on the Fiasco podcast before as the Revenant in Tales from the Hood's first segment. That's right. So, hi, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> we We dig you. We think you are awesome. 
We like your work, man. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to know where to start uh, with the performances in this, but I guess what right off the bat, um, you know, this is this is Danny Glover's movie. Um, he plays Tyrone Purvis, uh, and he is he's so fantastic. He's he's weathered. He's beaten. He's worn out, but he is so determined to make this work. He He's pretty much the definition of bloodied but unbowed yeah. by the time we meet him in this. And and his character has a past. He's, he's known and rumored to have killed a man once. And when we find out what actually happened, that just gives me chills and goosebumps on my arms every single time I see it. Yeah, the the uh his backstory and the current plot um both revolve around the um the popular uh folk song Stagger Lee uh which is about uh it's variously Stagger Lee, Stacko Lee, a couple other variations and uh always involves Staggerly shooting Billy Lyons, usually for cards. Although in, uh, I was just listening to Nick Cave's version today and holy Jesus, that song. <laughs> That's a dark version of, of a song that exists to uh, celebrate a murder. Yes. Sometimes it's throwing dice. Sometimes it's cards. Sometimes it's just because he's that goddamn mean, but Staggerly shoots Billy. And, uh, you know, because that's in his past, because they actually mention the song uh, during the movie, if you know anything about um, about the, the, the song and its history, you're expecting the worst to happen because you just know, you know, the... The whole movie is building up to this big night, and the big night is founded on what he thinks is a lie. Uh, well, it's founded on what he knows is a lie, but he thinks is an even bigger lie. And you're just, he's worried about losing the bar. You as the viewer are worried that it's going to end in bloodshed. So it, it really effectively manages the stakes. Because, um, you know, between the characters worried about their livelihood and the audience worried about their lives. Um, it, it's, it's pretty tense going. It is. And then there's a minor miracle and the electric guitar works and uh, young guitar Sam, or rather the, the character impersonating guitar Sam, but we'll, we'll get to that too. Uh, played walks outside of the bar with his instrument and brings everybody from a second bar over like the Pied Piper. Which is a fantastic scene, but it throws me out every time I see it. Because I'm like, why would he have a chord that long? Just because he's walking out there doesn't mean they can hear it. It's (laughs) Yeah, they really needed to bring out the amplifier, not the guitar. Yeah. But... (laughs) You know, I'm I'm willing to allow it because it really does. It plays like a fable. And there's so much in the movie about music of the past becoming the music of the future. Yes. That this is just the moment when 
rhythm and blues and blues got electric, at least in this this bar, in this place at this time. Uh, you you mentioned uh, you, you've mentioned a few times now the fairy tale aspect of it, and I think that nothing personifies that more than the character of Possum played by Keb Mo. Oh yes, he very definitely is the spirit of the blues in this. Yeah, um, they they throughout the movie he'll talk to people who need to hear what he has to say. And he always happens to be in the right place. And by the end of it, you realize that only the people who need to hear him notice him. Um, well, not only that, but he only talks to the other musicians. He he uh, only p- talks to Pine Top and Sonny. Yeah. And, and they're the ones who can perceive him. They never show him coming or going. They never show him arrive. There's really only one scene in the movie where he walks anywhere. Otherwise, he's just all, already sitting there with mirror black round sunglasses concealing his eyes and strumming his guitar. And knows everything about the person he's talking to. Already knows that. Knows, knows how to needle them because that's what he does. And at the end, when the electric music is there, he says he's, it's time for him to go on and go somewhere else. And I'd... I'd complain about that character a little bit, except that it's it's hard to write him off as the magical black character when, like, there are very few white people in the movie. So, you know, it's... <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not the, the magical Negro who shows up to improve a white person by being a subservient character that heals the problems in their lives. He is a mischief-making jerk, and there's a moment in in the final act in in the club when everything's possibly going to go wrong. There's two characters that have been getting on each other's nerves for the entire movie, and now they're both they're both been drinking, they're both angry because they got to go back to work in two days, and they both had it with each other, and they're both armed. And, and they're both armed. And the, the scene where you see how everything's going to play out with that has Possum smile at Pine Top and then turn and look at what's happening, even though his eyes don't work. Yeah. So there's there's moments of supernatural horror and there's moments of supernatural grace in the movie. And sometimes they involve the same character. True that. And... Uh, uh, when Possum is referring to himself, he uses the term spook. And that's a slur that doesn't get used by any other character in the movie at any point. So I think he's referring to himself as a spirit or a ghost. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there's clearly the double meaning there. Um, mm-hmm. Slightly Now, if different. you could just join the CIA. Exactly. <laughs> I was just thinking of that. It's slightly different than, than that wordplay but it's it's uh you know the same uh construction yes and and uh gary clark jr plays sunny and played his own did his own singing did his own guitar playing they did have stunt hands for uh for when pine top is playing danny glover apparently cannot really play the piano that's it i'm done with this movie no. Yeah, well, <laughs> but they did get a, a, a 
an authentic blind piano player to stand in for him. <laughs> and as as you said, it is about um, music moving on. And that does mean that people get left behind. And uh, so one of the tragic parts of the story deals with Bertha May, uh, played by Mabel John, who is a terrific blues singer. She's, I mean, the, when you open and you hear, when the, when the movie opens and you hear her singing, it is so great. And then you see how empty the bar is and your heart just breaks. Cause you know, it's like, it's, it's not her. It's the, the audience. It's yeah. It's, it's that nobody's there to listen to the blues anymore. And if they were there, they'd have a good time, but they're not there. And it's, it's very telling that the other roadhouse about a hundred yards away just has a jukebox. They don't have live music. Yeah. And everything starts to roll into what's what's going on uh, with the plot when Pine Top tells Bertha May that uh, she doesn't have to come by the next week because he's got somebody else coming in. And Bertha May's guy gets hugely offended by that and says, you know, you've got no no call to do that. And Bertha May says, look, it's his place. He gets to call the shots. Everyone there knows that the bar's losing business. Everyone there knows that Pine Top has her singing there because nobody else will do it. Yeah. And he loves the music, but it's it's a choice made by his heart, not by his business sense. And it's one of the reasons that he's going to lose the bar if he doesn't have the best weekend he's ever had. Yeah, it's such, you know, for a movie with a happy ending, it's so heartbreaking throughout. There's a lot of Shawshank before the redemption. Um, I mean, he's got... And even just the moral quandaries he goes through, uh, because you got to hustle and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's not going to make it if he's above board. And when things start to go out of control, he has to make increasingly risky and, um, moral, morally ambiguous choices, uh, about how to proceed. But, uh, one of the most touching is uh, he's on his way. He's got this plan. All, he just needs the money up front so that he can uh, so that he can pay Guitar Sam up uh, beforehand because Sam apparently won't get off the train unless you hand him the money. Right. He he knows his value, and if. People are, he, he's unwilling to get cheated by anybody. And honestly, if you're playing juke joints, you're getting ripped off. Oh God. Yeah. So, so he's famous enough that he can say, pay me my fee up front and I will play tonight. And if you don't, I will go on to the next stop where hopefully they know better than you do. So, uh, Pine Top makes the unpleasant choice to go to Bertha May to get the money to pay for her replacement that will save the place. And that's, yes. that's so you, as he's making that call, you, the other characters give him this look and you're giving him this look like, Oh, 
that is so cruel. And then mercifully, she's already died by the time he gets there. Yes. But then you watch him at her deathbed reaching toward her hand with a, a jeweled ring on it. And it's only the discussion between her beau and the undertaker about how they're going to have to scrape up everything they've got and sell everything that's still in the house in order to get her the best send-off that they can. And he can't take that from her. He, he can't quite bring himself to be as awful as the people that are pressing in on him. And there's an argument later on in the film uh, with his wife where she she says there's got to be something you won't do, but there's already been a point where there's something he won't do. Yeah. And, and it's not the kind of thing you can ever bring up in, uh, in that, that argument to help yourself. Like, but honey, I didn't steal the ring that I was really thinking of stealing. Yeah. But as, as much as his wife is involved with this church and there's gospel music there too, about, the choice between salvation and damnation and what's up to you. He made his choice there. Yeah. He was faced with, am I also a, a grave robbing thief? And it turns out, no, he'll, he'll hustle. He'll cheat. He'll lie. Uh, he hasn't paid his electric bill in five months because he couldn't afford it. And a friend of his who, who worked for the power company has rigged up a tap so that he can, he can get some electricity some of the time in the bar. <laughs> That's uh, Charles S. Dutton plays him, and he's so fun. He oh, those so two are great. so great together. <laughs> so fantastic. And and there's also kind of a strange running gag in the movie of people who have the wrong job. Yes. Uh, Sonny got out of the army, but he fixed radios for them. He wasn't a soldier, so... So he's an, a military veteran who fixes radios and now built himself a guitar. Uh, Maceo worked for the power company, but not doing any line work. He just drove the supply truck. Yeah. <laughs> but he picked up enough on-the-job knowledge that he can pretty much keep things going some of the time. There's just so much going on here. And even even characters who don't get much to do have are afforded a certain dignity. I think that that's sort of a, a John Sayles trademark, I think. Even though uh uh Pine Top's wife uh Delilah, uh played by Lisa Gay Hamilton, uh even though you know she's sort of the the figure of caution and trying to bring him back and uh trying to trying to get him to let his dream die peacefully. Mm -hmm. Um, she's not presented as a nag or, you know, a shrew or any of that. She's just a person who loves her husband and wants him to stop hurting himself with this failing venture. And, and he's just, he's too fiercely proud to let it go because for a while he built it and he had it and it worked. And if you're a 
a black man in Alabama in 1950 with a business that works. Uh, you, I mean, you had to have been shoving that boulder as hard as you could every day for decades. And then he's seeing it fall apart and, and he's unwilling to kick the blues singers out. He's at one point, he even says there's, there's an alcoholic that if he's not buying booze from him, he's buying it from somebody who brews bust head out, out in the swamp. And that means he's going to be blind or dead in a month if he drinks it. Yeah. I mean, he genuinely cares about his, uh, the people around him. He just, you know, he, he doesn't know exactly how to express that, mm -hmm. but it's not in the, the sort of stereotyped, I'm going to be an ass because I can't express myself. It's more that he just keeps it quiet. And yes. And, and he does express himself. There's, there's a moment at the end where the sheriff has come in as a man that he's he's going to pay $50 after the weekend, so they'd better get that 50 bucks too, in addition to what they owe to everybody already, and in addition to what they owe Guitar Sam, or he won't get off a train. And he's trying to stall things as best as he can, and then the previous sequence, it was at the Gospel Church, where Delilah is is told in song by the choir and in a sermon by the priest, you have to choose. You're with us or you're with the forces of hell. You're, you're with the sacred or you're with the secular. And it's an open question about what she's going to choose. But then she shows up just in time to defuse the situation for the sheriff and to take his dinner order. That is such a great sequence. And, um, I really and and she does get in one line, facing the sheriff, but talking to her husband, saying it's very important not to bite off more than you can chew, <laughs> because it's a marriage, and in a marriage, if you have a chance to do that, you're going to. One of the things I love about the 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 sequence in the church you talked about is that. You know, you see that trope a lot of uh, people go, you know, people faced with a quandary going to church uh, for an answer. And this movie worked that in in such an effective way because it was it wasn't just a moment for her. It was her plot line. She's mm -hmm. been having to choose. Try. She's been wanting uh, when the movie opens, she comes home from. Uh, from the revival tent and you know Pontop asks her has she, she felt the spirit yet and she says no but I keep wanting to and so you know her motivation she wants to belong to the church she wants to believe in it and so you know that makes it so important when she goes there after a fight with him and they're practically you know imploring her to give him up and you know that that is a hell of a choice and such an effect and, and it's everyone it's everyone in the church everyone saying you know do it join us come with us be on the good side get on the side of the angels get on the side that's right and if it hadn't been for her talking with the priest after uh, the funeral uh, for 
Bertha May. She wouldn't have had any of that in her mind. But the, the priest keeps telling her, like, well, you know, she was hellbound and she was a, sing, a secular singer and sang in these juke joints and liquor places. And that, you know, that's intolerable. That's ungodly. That's an abomination. And she says something like, but I never knew her to do any harm to anybody over her entire life. Mm-hmm. And the priest was like, well, tough. She's a singer in these juke joints, and that's just the worst. And you know what? Maybe that's not the worst. Maybe there's other stuff that is worse. Yep. And, you know, ultimately it was her decision. And uh, and there was never any interference from Pine Top. He never said, you know, you need to stay away from those holy rollers. No, he like like with most other people, he genuinely just wanted her to be happy and seemed, you know, he regretted that he kept letting her down, but, you know, at the same time. He, he's letting himself down first and then everyone else after that, which has to sting even more. Let's roll back around to, uh, to the sheriff. Um, Certainly. Stacy Keach, he is such a phenomenal villain. He is. And in this movie, he's like, he's like an old cat just lying on a bookshelf, looking around and knowing that he owns the entire place. Yeah. Like he's not the head busting nightstick wielding guy. He just shows up and insinuates a couple things. Yeah. And that's that. And, and you know, he's white and he's got the power of the law on his side, which does make him lawful evil. And he abuses it so thoroughly with the help of, of the judge. And this is this is something that was quite common. Um, I don't know if you've seen, was it called the 13th? 13th, I think. Yeah. The, no, but I'm I'm aware of of what it's about. Prison labor is slave labor. Yes. And the 13th Amendment emancipating slaves left in a giant loophole saying, well, leave the free ones alone unless they've done a crime and then get all the labor out of them you can. And the problem got so bad that, um, you know, they, they, they were doing it to, to white folk as well, which finally got attention focused on it and, you know, movies made about you know young white teens forced into labor camps for vagrancy here we see you know the the closer to the the reality of the problem where you know there's cotton that needs picking so sheriff pew looks goes around looks for you know black people that he doesn't recognize trumps up a charge of vagrancy Gawkery with intent to mope. And uh, sells him to the judge for uh, to pick cotton. And there's a, uh, you know, one of the sequences, of course, the one he picks up is the one who saves everybody, uh, Sonny, um, uh, who, who's been, um, who's just gotten off of the train and has nowhere to go and winds up having to pick cotton. But you also see uh, the the free laborers who aren't quite so free, 
but are freer than the the um, the workforce gang um, who are you know one of them they're the ones who who have who build up to the confrontation at the end and one of them is is trying to have pride in his work and do his best uh, that he can picking the cotton and expects that by play by playing fair himself he's going to be dealt with fairly by the white um, uh, people running the show and, and that works as well as it always does and the other guy is gleefully exploiting the the system you know you've got you know why why would i work hard when <laughs> when when we're being treated like this why you know be, be sure they, to, they take two bucks off uh, your your end of the week amount for whatever stones and dirt and trash you had in the bag. And yeah, the one guy is talking about there, there were no stones in there. And the guy who's been busting his balls for the entire week in the hot sun was like, yeah, I threw many, so many rocks in there. He could pave a road with it. If they're taking the money away, I'm just going to throw extra weight in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's these two completely opposite, and you know what? I don't. They're they're in a situation where there is no right answer, but those yeah. are those are the you know they stand for completely real competing philosophies. Oh yeah, and and the one who's you know trying to do the best job he can takes just as much pride in his ability to work the field as Pine Top does in his bar, and it gets him exactly as much respect. From the powers that be. <laughs> None. Mm-hmm. And yet he... And you know, there's numbers below zero, right? <laughs> and yet, Pew is the one, Sheriff Pew is the one that because of the corrupt system that he's a part of, he's the one that Pine Top has, Pine Top has to go to in order to, to get himself out of his immediate trouble. So he buys himself some trouble down the road, but gets what he needs to get out of the current emergency. Not only that, but when uh, when Cool Breeze comes by to threaten him on opening night and saying, you know, well, what if we decide we're just going to take it over anyway? Pine Top's able to just side-eye over and say, well, my partner over there, who is not actually his partner at that point, <laughs> he might have a problem with that. And uh, sure, this this henchman for a gangster up in Kansas City, he can steamroll Pine Top in an instant and get away with it and doesn't care. And he could take over the bar. But he cannot stand up to any single white authority figure and and both he and Pine Top know that. So he at least gets the satisfaction. He gets two pieces of satisfaction. One is believing that Pine Top is now stuck working for the man forever. And he's never coming back to this map spec, so he he will never know and he'll never care. And the other one is that he gets to tell him, you know, that ain't really Guitar Sam, when <laughs> every single person has been setting this up for like the second and third act of the movie to fake that they've got Guitar Sam. Yeah. <laughs> and know, that, I think that might be my favorite part of the movie, is where he goes, oh, and by the way, that's not really Guitar Sam, and then leaves <laughs> with his head held high in a complete huff with the money he was promised. <laughs> like he won something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I just realized, I just realized, uh, as you were saying that, that Pine Top is, not only is Pine Top the one who prevents the, the long expected fight, but he embodies the, the way to navigate between the two views because he is as prideful, as you said, he is as prideful as the hard worker, but he also will use the system against itself. Yes. Uh, like and and I mean, I, I knew that, but I couldn't have articulated it as easily and concisely as you just did. It was a group effort, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to take the assist on that. <laughs> And the the other line, the best line in the movie is where he's talking to the the two guys who were going to kill each other and says, you know, that's not happening here tonight and relieves one of his gun and the other one of his knife and then asks their names and finds out, you know, what they are. It's like Dex Hamilton and Roger Montcrief or something like that. And then he turns to Montcrief and just goes, and nothing rhymes with Montcrief about how they're never <laughs> even getting a murder ballad. <laughs> and i love that so much uh one of the other really small touches in the movie that i adore is that um the rapper for it uh is two children uh who the the movie opens and you see uh one child um trying to uh trying to, to play a, a, a sort of homemade uh, guitar and um, using a bottle uh, on it and, and getting some, some twangies out of it. And the other kid with a, um, with like, I, I don't know if it was a piece of wood or card, really stiff cardboard or what it was, but it's got... I think um, it's a leftover barn plank. And it's got, uh, it's got, um, piano keys painted on it. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sitting there and, you know, the one kid's just hitting the board with keys painting on it. And the other guy's making these awful sounds on, on the, uh, one string guitar. And, uh, uh, you go from that in the beginning and there, you follow them and they lead you to the honey dripper um which if we hasn't said yet is the name of the bar and and the movie and the movie and at the end you see that um that they've now added a string to go from the homemade guitar to a a nail on the porch so that's his electric feed mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, you don't you you don't hear the the sad twang anymore. You hear real music that they hear in their heads as they're as they're playing. And, yes. Uh, you know that's that's again. It's not only a, a great way to introduce and then exit the movie, but you've you've gotten the sense of okay. And then these are the kids that are going to replace Sonny. Right. That the music just, it got into them and they're going to continue on. And I, I kind of love that theme whenever it pops up that, 
you know, it may change, but it's it's never going to die. Yeah. And I believe the song that's playing as the end credits start up, as as that scene's playing out, is called The Music Keeps Rolling On. Yeah, I think uh, I think John Sales wrote that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, multi-talented. So, yeah. 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 Uh, songwriter, screenwriter, director, editor, and also man with brief cameo in this movie. Delivering booze. <laughs> Well, delivering booze, finding out the guy can't pay him cash at, as he drops it off, and then taking the booze away. <laughs> sales giveth and sales taketh away. Just because, you know, Pine Top needed one more damn problem. So, oh my God, uh, at just... that point, he's... <gasps> the hits just keep on coming. But then immediately after that, another truck from another booze distributor shows up for a delivery for the bar that's a hundred yards farther down the road and he intercepts it. He even says like, oh, well, uh, I expect you got my check then. And the driver's like, well, I wouldn't have brought it if I hadn't. So now he has Mr. Toussaint, who owns the other bar, who, if he ever finds out about this, will want to just bust him in the head until he dies. And while we have uh, other relationships going on in the film, but I, I love the friendship between uh, Maceo and, and Pine Top. Oh, yeah. They just very obviously, they've got each other's backs and they're going to until the end of time. Uh, Pine Top's stepdaughter, China Doll, and Sonny, their eyes meet across a, an empty room and immediately there's a spark that has nothing to do with the power feed going into the guitar. And uh, it... You know, it starts to look like those kids might might really have something going, and then Sonny gets snagged and thrown onto the, the cotton field. It has to get bought out with uh, the sheriff's own money that he was looking forward to getting from the kid picking cotton for him. And at, at the very end, the last song that gets played at the, the big concert with Guitar Sam is one that he says... He, it just came to him while he was getting his hair cut, which was right before he went on stage, so he looked more stylish, and which China Doll had done, and it's an R&B number called China Doll, and it's about how much he loves her. So she's beyond thrilled, and now he's got a reason to stay. So the Honey Dripper's going to stay in business as long as they can keep him there. I mean, they're not going to have a record-breaking night every night, but they have the new sound. And I. it's also really significant that pine top sits down at the piano and plays along while uh sunny is is pretending to be guitar sam up there on stage because we don't we don't see him play very much at all in the movie but but he sits right down and and joins in when when the music enters his heart and starts to move him and what really, what what what's the the tragedy about this movie, is that uh, it really did not do and do very well. Um, it 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 came, people ignored it. It went. It did. Um, it did pitiful uh, uh, box office, and. You know, when when you when you 
look at the kinds of movies that fail and you're like and yet adam sandler keeps getting movies made yeah it's, it's just heartbreaking and it's it's just one of those things where you know damn it people this was really good did they just were they just not able to sell it were they not able to get it into theaters i i have no idea i mean it was made on sales terms he he makes his movies the way he wants them to be made and if if he's the writer the director and the editor then he he sets what's going to happen in the movie in the pre-production during production and in post-production it's it's as close to what he wanted as you're likely to get. And it just, it really hurts my feelings that this, this was a bomb. Yeah. I mean, sales, sales is, um, he's known, but he's not popularly known. No, he's cinephile known. He's not like Coen brothers famous even. And I, I think it's a damn shame because, you know, uh, you happens to pick this one. I can think of a half dozen movies of his that I could have chosen for this. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it, it was 50-50 between this one and Brother from Another Planet. I just was like, do I do this one? Do I do Brother from Another Planet? Do I do this one? Do I do Brother? Honey Dripper, Brother from Another Planet. I was just blowing my own mind trying to figure it out. And then I remembered yeah. we're, we're hoping to do year two. Yeah, it's like, and there's another. And I have to say, I really, I, I think he was on Eureka at the point, at that point where they were making this, and he just couldn't get out of filming that. But I really wish Joe Morton had been in this. In some, oh yes, even just a walk on. Yeah, yeah. That, but that unfortunately, been... it just it didn't happen to work out that way. Actually. Speaking of, of blind blues musicians and crossroads and fables and things, uh, in the movie Crossroads, and with which uh, Ralph Macchio's classically trained guitarist <laughs> goes, goes to fight the devil's musician to win back an old harmonica player's soul, directed by Walter Hill, uh, Joe Morton plays the devil's henchman who shows up in like the thirties and the eighties and hasn't aged an hour. Right. I, 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 that, that's one that, uh, you made me watch and, uh, I, I'm still embarrassed that I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> the whole premise of Ralph Macchio blues player, just, oh my God. <laughs> but, but he, you know, He's a classically trained guitarist who also likes the blues. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have the blues. He just likes listening to them. It, and that's actually a plot point. It's not it's not like it's Soul Man or anything. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it it comes down to a one-on-one fight again and and he doesn't know the crane kick for this one. <laughs> But I did love that the the supernaturally talented, like thrash blues, hair metal guitar player, didn't know the classical thing. Like yeah. he knew all the popular stuff, but the classically trained stuff, he he couldn't do. So it wasn't you can't outplay him. You just have to have practiced a lot more and earned it rather than have the devil hand it to you. Yeah. So I did dig that. 
maybe we can have a mini sode of of you know I'm kind of embarrassed that I like this <laughs> Goof, goofy premise movies. <laughs> A thing could happen. And we, we raised the fiasco ensign to ask our friends uh, another movie-related question. Uh, today's was, tonight we're talking about a film where the protagonist has just one last chance to succeed. What's your favorite movie with a last chance to get it right? Dave Thomas said, well, as Terry Pratchett said, million to one chances work out about nine times out of ten. But he didn't give us a movie. But, but he's right. Uh, Brian Clark says, Ed Wood. I know he got more than one chance to succeed, but he blew every damn one of them and had a ball doing it. Yes, indeed. He he loved being a director. Uh, Eric Peterson says The Shootist, which is John Wayne's last film mm. and sort of the the epitaph for his 50-year career in Westerns. Uh, Mike Bakovin says, I know I've been pimping Alexander Payne a lot, but About Schmidt fits the bill nicely, though not really until the last shot. It's also got one of the best old man fights of the past 20 years. Ah, see, that one looked like it had way too much despair in it for me to want to dig it. I I and... literally know nothing about it except what I just read. Ah. Uh? Tim Geralami says The Wild Bunch, which I've started watching a half dozen times and then something happens and I have to go do something else and cannot finish the movie. But the beginning's really cracking. <laughs> yeah, that's one that's been on my radar for a long time and I, I haven't gotten around to yet. Uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to give that one. I'll have to bump that up the, the try it list. And Edward McNeely adds DOA. Is that the one where the guy has to solve his own murder? Uh, I think so, if I'm remembering it correctly. I mean, I've, I've seen so much noir at this point that it's really hard to separate. <laughs> oh, if, if that's the one I'm thinking of, yeah, the guy like staggers into the police station to report his own murder. And he's getting like radiation poisoning from from whatever he ate. He can't handle his polonium. So he's got like a day to figure out who tried to kill him and why. Or even who is killing him and why. All right, Sean, uh, what's your favorite Oh Man, One Last Chance movie? Uh, I'm going to go with the earliest feature I know of uh, offhand with this uh, with this plot point. Um mostly because uh, I just saw it for the first time last month. And okay. it's one of the funniest things I've ever watched. And that is Harold Lloyd's 1925 comedy, The Freshman. Oh, it is a hoot. He, uh, he's way too old to be playing a freshman, but forget that. Uh, he, his entire purpose is in, uh, in going to college is to become the most popular student. And he believes he's learned how to do it from watching movies. Wow. And it is hilarious. And he is set up from the moment he arrives as the, the stooge of the freshman class. And everyone uh, 
you know, abuses him and makes fun of him and they set him up to believe he's popular and it all comes crashing down when he's been selected to host a, uh, a grand party. Uh, and it's supposed to be, you know, whoever hosts that is usually the shoe in for, mm. to be voted most popular. And it's during that, that he discovers that he's the laughing stock of the class. So, it all comes down to his last chance to become genuinely popular is to um, is to perform well in the football game. But one of the things running jokes that they've been making out of him the whole movie is that he's not actually on the team. He's the water boy. <laughs> but they let him practice and, and pretend to be uh, because it amuses them. And... Uh, so he gets, you know, all the substitutions have been made. Most of the team is crippled because of the monsters on the opposing uh, uh, side. And he gets his chance. And it is, you know, I, I, I don't understand sports. I don't follow sports. I actually have deep-seated reason, reasons to despise football players um, uh, in specific. And watching him try to uh, try to make a, the winning play in the final moments of this game is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Awesome! I I'll have to put that on the list. So uh, so what's yours? Uh, I'm tempted by two, but I I did narrow it down. Uh. Honorable mention to The Big Night, which pretty much is the mm. plot of Honey Dripper. Uh, Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub play two Ital two brothers from Italy who run an authentic Italian restaurant that's going to go under if they don't have The Big Night uh, of the title. Because the the town they chose to put their uh, the restaurant in is really only interested in spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> and it's just two guys trying like hell to to dig out of the wreckage and i'm not going to let it, you, you know what the the final answer is except to say that i it's a silent sequence between the two brothers that that will just break your heart and make you smile at the same time yeah that's that's there's so much good, great stuff in that one but the one i really want to talk about is hammer studios first ghost story Starring some actor named Daniel Radcliffe that maybe you've heard of. Yeah, uh, that called... minor player. Yeah, that, that guy that did some movies about a kid at school or something. <laughs> uh, uh, it's called The Woman in Black. And it's about a young barrister in uh, about 1915 or so in, in London who's told there's no my wife is dead in team and they're going to sack him if he doesn't very quickly process all of the paperwork in the fantastically named Eel Marsh House. <laughs> Eel Marsh House is deeply haunted, covered in cobwebs, has yawning pits in the floors and chasms in the ceilings, uh, and every time the ghost there is witnessed, it then apports itself to the, the village that's near Eel Marsh House and compels a child to kill itself. And he finds out just what he's been doing. Of course, counterproductively, none of the villagers will talk to him. Yeah. 
And and because of that, he just goes to the mansion and tries to get the job done. He's a nice enough person that he would have said, I can't take this job if they told him, you know, every time you see that haunting, uh, a kid here dies. So it's, you know, don't do that. But he finds out what's up when his son is coming to visit him on the train and it's too late to communicate with anyone to call it off. And that's, it makes it a horror movie for grownups. Like a horror movie for teenagers is thinking about, man, I hope nothing bad happens to me. Yeah. <laughs> and a horror movie for grownups is, oh my God, something awful is going to happen to someone I love. And I'm powerless to stop it. That is terror. That is such a good movie. And it allayed all of my fears about uh, Hammer starting up again. Oh, yeah. And it has one moment that, like, the more you think about it, the worse it is. There's a point where uh, Radcliffe's character hears sobbing from from somewhere and goes up to see, you know, what the heck's going on? Why am I hearing a woman crying? And it turns out to be the mockingbird that they keep as a pet, which means it's heard a woman sobbing so much that it can mimic it. Right. So, you know, a comedy. Yeah. So really, you're better off with the big night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, um, if if uh, if it weren't January 2nd, I think we would have gotten a lot of responses because this is such a common, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be one of the, you know, 12 most. Yeah most used um, um, plot points. The 12 plots of cinema. I mean, it's, it, it's a classic. Um, yeah. You know, you've got, you've got everything from things like uh, used cars where they have gravity. To... Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one where, you, yeah, really, really one chance. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, lot of actioners have, you know, the, the, the crook making their final attempt. Oh yeah, um, one one last heist before I retire. I mean, so many uh, spoiled for choice. Um, yeah, uh, stretch a point. It's the Blues Brothers. Yeah, Red Dawn. I mean, there's that's you can fit a lot of things in there. Unfortunately, uh, I think people are still off from work and not looking at Facebook and and not particularly caring to answer the questions. So tough you only get a few this time <laughs> all right well let's see what is in store for us next all right randomizer let's do this well you put this one in the hopper i'm willing to bet uh we're we're looking at it's got music in it again <laughs> uh, but this time it's the pipe organ rather than the electric guitar uh, the Abominable Dr. Fibes. Oh, yeah. Vincent Price, superstar. You know, we couldn't do a se our first season without having one Vincent Price. And when I was thinking about it, I really want to talk about this one. Oh, it's it's a joy. It, it's so fantastic. He he doesn't speak or change his facial expression, and he's still a ham. <laughs> the man is made of solid ham. 
He is. He is the avatar of Ham. <laughs> so great. So great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie. If you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us, however you can. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can reach the Fiasco Brothers themselves on Facebook.com slash Fiasco Brothers Podcast, and on Twitter as at Fiasco Brothers. If you enjoy the show, consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, totally boss discussions cut from the existing episodes. That's at patreon.com slash Fiasco Brothers. We'll see you again in two weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. Where's Fiasco? Fiasco!